Um, what is a trait that your family is known for? We each kind of have family traits, right? There's like certain things that you just know like your family is known for. Um, what, 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 what would be a trait that your family is known for? Like I'm actually asking you the question, so feel free to like give me an answer, somebody. What is it? Competitiveness. <laughs> We're going to start some family fights right here this morning. I can feel it already. We're going to offer counseling afterwards for anyone who, okay, competitiveness. Somebody else said something over here? Arguing? Okay, yeah. You might want to hang out with these guys some. That'd be fun. Somebody else? My, my family, one of our traits is volume. You can normally hear a parks coming before you, you'll see them. Not all of us, but some of us, um, for sure. Um, each of our families kind of have these traits, right? There's just things that kind of get passed on through your family that your family can be known for. Hopefully, some of those are positive and good. Uh, inevitably, some of those are, are negative and bad as well. Um, but we're going to start a three-week series. We tend to do this in September um, as we start kind of a new academic year. Uh, called Family Traits. And we're just going to look at uh, three of, of the traits that we really want our village family to be known for. And we're really going to kind of work through um, our vision statement, if you will. Um, so this is our vision statement as a church. So if you're new, this might be helpful to you. Um, village Church desires to be, we're not claiming to be there yet, but this is our hope and our aim, our ambition we're striving toward, being a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. Um, you can really break that into three categories. Those categories we'll look at the next three weeks. Today we are looking at gospel, next week mission, uh, community, and the third week mission. Um, and so this morning I want to look at this idea of being gospel-shaped, a gospel-shaped community who love Jesus. Um, typically, um, we kind of work through books of the Bible or large chunks of the Bible. This series will be a little bit different. It's a little more thematic. Um, and so whilst we will look to the scripture, obviously, as we do every week, um, we'll start a new series after this working through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and so that should be fun. Um, so whenever um, we were first starting Village Church, um, however many years ago, um, before all of that, I went and did a church planting intensive in New York with uh, a church called Redeemer, um, pastored by Tim Keller. So you might have, have heard him and um, heard of him. And while, we, while I was there, we were there. Uh, there was 13 of us from all around the world. We were there for five weeks. Uh, we were in class kind of Monday to Friday. It, it was what it says. It was an intensive. Basically, they have a year-long program they do for those in New York and they do it for international students in five weeks. And so it's intense. And um, we were all there to learn how to plant churches. Um, and so we're there. We got our stack of reading um, uh, and everything that we're going through. And uh, Tim Keller is, is giving us a lecture. And this wasn't even his main point. It was kind of an aside. But once he said it, I literally couldn't, I don't remember anything else after that. It's like the Holy Spirit took this sentence and just dropped it in my soul like an atomic bomb that went off. And I spent the rest of that night wandering through Manhattan with this ringing in my ears, trying to just meditate on, on the implications of that. And this is what he had said. He said, uh, don't plant a church, which was funny because that's why we had all spent all that money to go there to figure out how to do. And now you're telling us not to do that. He says, don't plant a church, plant the gospel. And the implication of that being the gospel is the seed that we actually plant. 
Um, even in the parable of the four soils that Jesus uses, this scattering of seed, this planting of seed, it isn't the church that, the seed, that is the seed. It's the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus that's planted. And out of that then um, comes a church. And that is, in many ways, shaped a lot of what we have done. It is a paradigm shift. And it's not just a paradigm shift when we think about church planting. It's a paradigm shift as we think about how we live our lives as Christians. Um, today's going to, a lot of it will be shaped by a lot of those things that I learned. Keller asked four questions, and I want these questions to kind of shape our time together this morning. Um, because this idea of being shaped by the gospel sounds really good, but what does that actually mean? And so four things I want to look at this morning. What is the gospel? Should the gospel shape our lives? Or should it be something else like the law? Um, plenty of people will actually say that. In some ways, we've taught that. We'll come back to that. Third, what does a life shaped by the gospel look like, and how do we allow the gospel to shape our lives? And so this will be part sermon, part Keller-esque lecture this morning that I hope will give us some um, clarity on, on what it is we're trying to accomplish. So first of all, what is the gospel? And we'll start with what is the nature of the gospel? Um, and, it, and I think this is important because the nature of the gospel is this. The gospel is news. It's not advice. It's news. It's not advice. So advice is counsel that you get to help you uh, accomplish something, right? You have a task. You're wanting to, to do it or you're wanting to be better at something. And so you might get counsel or advice on how to do that. News is different than advice, right? News is a report that something has already happened. Something's already been accomplished and then in history, in time and space. And then, then we respond to that. So advice and news are fundamentally different. All other religions offer really advice. What you need to do to be able to meet God, reconcile with God, whatever their religion is, you know, nirvana, heaven, whatever it is. Christianity is the only one that doesn't come with advice on how to do that. It comes with news of something that's already happened Something that's already been accomplished that we respond to. Another way to say that is every other religion was founded by a person saying, here's the way to find God. Here's the way that you can find your way to God. It's only Christianity that's founded by a man saying that he was God. I'm God. Come to find you. It's fundamentally different. Another way to say it is the gospel doesn't come through Jesus Christ The gospel is Jesus Christ. We respond to something that's already happened. We get an explanation of the gospel all throughout the scripture. Um, In many ways, it's the overarching narrative of the the Bible. Um, But we looked at explicitly in Ephesians 2, right? And, And let's just revisit that. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. And so that's all of us before we knew Jesus. We're, we're born, we're still born. We're born dead in our sins and our trespasses. And we, we walked in those things, following just the course of the world. We had a worldly worldview, a worldly mindset. We followed the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is Satan and his tactics, the zeitgeist of our time, our culture. It says, and we all once lived in in just the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So this is what we were. 
We just were doing our thing. We were just led by our own desires. We were looking to our culture like the rest of mankind, not seeking God, not interested in those things. And then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even while we were still sinners, Paul would say in Romans, because of his love for us, he, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace. It's all grace that you've been saved. So what did we do in those first verses to, to be made alive in Christ? Not, nothing. We were just off doing our own thing. We just being our own sinful selves. And God in his mercy initiates. God in his mercy out of his love for us comes. And by his grace we've been saved. Verse 6. And raises up with him. He seats us in the heavenly places of Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. How? In Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So all of that, how we've come to Christ, wasn't by our own doing. It wasn't by our own works. It was, it was all a measure of God's grace to us. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 We'll get to that in this next series. He says this. He says, I, I aim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that's an exaggeration. That's not all he knew, right? He spent a long time expounding lots of different things. But what does he mean by this know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? It's an emphasis on the importance and the centrality of the gospel. It's shorthand for that. Jesus and him crucified. What Jesus accomplishes on the cross is what he was determined to know nothing except those things. The gospel, this news of what Jesus has already accomplished on our behalf, it takes the burden off. Advice puts a burden on us. Advice how you should live, how you should do these things so that you can accomplish these things. It puts a burden on us. And it's tricky, isn't it? Because God has given us good works for us to walk in, even before that he's predestined for us beforehand. But it's a matter of order. It's a matter of how we understand these things. The gospel takes burdens off of us. Traditional kind of legalism, right, or moralism, how we live that we're supposed to live a certain way. And a lot of religion is this way. A lot of Christianity is this way, though it shouldn't be is this, this traditional, there's, and there's a couple different kinds of legalism. That's why I say traditional legalism. We'll come to the other kind in the second year. Traditional legalism explicitly sometimes, or maybe more often implicitly, says unless you follow all of these kind of rules, some of those being from the Bible, some of those being extra biblical rules that we've extrapolated in, in our own kind of understanding and put on, unless you follow all these things, you aren't really a Christian, or maybe you're like a second or third tier Christian. There's this, there's this underlying burden that's put on people um, to behave a certain kind of way, to be able to call themselves and to be counted among Christians. It's putting burdens on. 
There's another kind of legalism. It's a more liberal, progressive legalism, but it's still a legalism nonetheless. This kind of legalism doesn't talk much about sin or rules or God's wrath or repentance, but rather they frame it as a new kind of people of God, a community of love, of joy, of peace, of which to belong to. To become a Christian, you join this community, and then in doing so, you bring love and justice and peace to the world. And again, that sounds pretty good. That sounds maybe even better than that first option. But it's still a burden. You still have to be a certain, you still have to be inclusive. You have to love people. You have to volunteer. You have to be active. Like there's a certain kind of, you have to be this kind of a person to belong to this kind of community. So what is the language of our heart when we think about our faith, when we think about Jesus? I hope it's the kind of language of even the songs that we've sung this morning, of being released from death, of, being, of chains coming off, is the language of our heart when we think about our faith, our day-to-day kind of life. Is it burdensome or is it free? To become a Christian, to do all of these things, even if they're good things, can often feel like a burden. Look at 1 Corinthians um, 15. Again, I'm, I'm looking forward to us being able to get into uh, some of this as we work through um, this, this uh, book coming up. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5. How does Paul, again, frame He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what he received was from Jesus himself. He says a revelation of Jesus. First importance. What is that? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. Of first importance was what Jesus had accomplished for us. That was of first importance to him. We looked at this um, last week some, not to confuse our sanctification with our justification. The, The gospel releases us from these burdens, burdens of our future, of expectations from other people. Our baseline of our lives should be a sense of freedom in Christ bubbling up in joy. We don't confuse our, our sanctification, that is walking in holiness, with our justification. We looked at this last week. Remember the Pharisee looking to himself, even though he gave God the credit for that, even though he was a religious, moral person, giving God credit for his holiness, holiness he was still looking to his holiness as his justification. And Jesus says, actually, he walks away not justified before God. It's the... It's the sinner who hadn't done anything who's fully leaning on the mercy of Jesus, the mercy of God. If you think that somehow you can improve upon the propitiation of God's wrath by the blood of Jesus that leads to complete freedom from all guilt, you won't be shaped by the gospel. You'll be shaped by something else. And you'll burden yourself and often others with a legalistic kind of understanding of faith. 
there's no way in one sermon we're going to have time to, to look at everything we could. We could just take one sermon on each of these four probably. Um, but I hope at least this gets us started in the right direction and we'll have fruitful conversations in our missional communities this week. Secondly then, does or should the gospel shape our life? Okay, so hopefully you've got questions now about that we've just raised. Well, does this mean I can just live however I want to? Is this like I can just sin because of grace? All of those sorts of things. Stay with us. Does or should the gospel shape our life? So some, some people would say the gospel isn't what shapes our life. It's the law. And we shouldn't confuse law and gospel. And that's true. We shouldn't confuse those things. Some would say the gospel is how we come to faith in Christ, right? And then, having been saved by grace through Jesus, we ask the question, okay, well, how do I live a life pleasing to the, law, to the Lord? And we look to the law then to, um, to, to guide us in that. And that's, that's true to, to a certain extent. And so let's, let's think about this a little bit more. We've talked about, um, if you remember in, in previous series, this idea of the third use of the law, right? So the first function the, of the law of God is like a mirror. It reflects both to us the perfect righteousness of God and our own kind of sinfulness and shortcoming. It's meant to, the law is meant to give knowledge of sin. And it, it shows us our need of pardon, our danger of damnation to lead us into faith and repentance in Christ. That's part of what the law does for us. The second function then, we said, is like a stop sign. Um, it stops us from certain things. This is the civil use um, of the law to restrain evil. So though the law can't change the heart, and we'll come to that in a minute, it can, to some extent, inhibit lawlessness by its threats of judgment, especially when backed by a civil code or civil government that administers punishment for proven offenses, right? This is our, our idea of justice in, in the world. If, if someone murders or, or steals, um, we expect justice. We expect the law to restrain evil. And so the law acts as a stop sign. The third then function that we've talked about, our third use of the law is like a map. And so for the Christian, it guides us like a map would into the good works that God has planned for them beforehand that we just saw in Ephesians 2.10. The law tells God's children what will please our Heavenly Father. We could think of it as like a family code. Jesus actually says that we're to go make disciples and then teaching them all that he's commanded us, right? And so this isn't a sense of there's just grace, now go do whatever you want to do. There is a way that we should live. But is it the law that shapes us or is it the gospel that shapes us? Again, Paul reiterates this in Galatians 2. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's not the law, it's not our works that make us right before God. But what do we think about like in holiness, how it shapes us? So the law is a guide. It is a map. But you know there's ways to read maps rightly and wrongly, Right? And if we're just leaning on the law to shape us, we'll often read the map the wrong way. So we, we have to read the map with the right kind of glasses on. And those, those glasses, the lenses that we want to look at the law through, is through the lens of the gospel. 
Let me give um, some illustrations, and maybe this will help us. Um, this is a, a true illustration uh, that I heard somebody else give. And it is basically um, of a woman who um, was working for a television network, and she was new on the job, and she made a big mistake, um, like a career-ending kind of mistake, a, 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 a mistake that would have got her fired and probably made her hard to find another job. Um, but her boss um, actually went to, to his superiors and said, hey, listen, um, it wasn't her fault. I didn't train her well. I didn't give her proper um, uh, instruction. And he basically took uh, the, the blame and shielded her from that and said, don't fire her. Um, that one's on me. And so went back, and, and she just couldn't understand why this was. And, and so she went to, her, to the, the boss, and she was like, listen, I've had plenty of bosses take credit for work that I've done, but I've never had a boss take blame for, for what I've done. You know, what's, what's going on here? And, and, you know, he just tried to kind of, you know, be humble about that and this, that, and the other. And she just wasn't satisfied with his answers and kept pressing him and pressing him. Why would you do something like that? And he's like, okay, fine. I'll tell you, but you've made me tell you. I'm a Christian. <laughs> and uh, he says, I'm a Christian. And he goes, my whole faith is based on someone who took the blame and punishment for something they didn't do so that we might have um, a life to live. Now, let me ask the question in that. Did the law require him to do that? Would it have been a sin had he not done that? Well, not really. It wouldn't, I don't think it would have been a sin for him not to do that. I think, I think technically the law, if, if you think about it deeply, he could. Like there's the golden rule, rule, do unto others. We looked at that in the Sermon on the Mount as you would have them to do unto you. Like, I think the law could get you there if you were looking at it the right way. But it's, it's looking at it through the lens of the gospel. He looked at what Jesus had done for him. And that shaped the way that he thought about the way that he should live his life. Let's look at a, an example from the Bible in Galatians chapter 2. Um, if you remember um, in Galatians chapter 2, um, you've got this incident with Paul and with Peter. Um, Peter, uh, if you remember, Peter had a vision from the Lord um, and basically telling him all the things that you used to think were unclean as a Jew um, food, eating with Gentiles, all those sorts of things. Um, those things are now not unclean anymore. Um, and that you can eat those things. You can eat with Gentiles. And uh, he sent him in this vision to go to um, Cornelius' house, a Gentile that's there. Um, but somewhere along the line, Paul, um, whenever these other Jews would come, come around, particularly he would, he would separate himself from the Gentiles and he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. Essentially, these kind of, this, this way of looking at the law had these racist kind of ten tendencies uh, would come out. These sectarian kind of tendencies would come out. He would separate himself and he wouldn't eat with Gentiles when these Jews were, were, were around. And so Paul comes and he addresses this. And look at what he says in verse 14 of Galatians 2. But when I saw that their conduct, this is Paul speaking, opposing, um, opposing him. Um, he said, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with what? The law? No. He doesn't appeal to the law. 
He says, when I saw that their contact was, conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though like a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? He was being hypocritical. And Paul is appealing to the gospel. Can you look purely to the law and not be a racist? Yes, I think so. Um, there's plenty, I think, that's there in the law about not being a respecter of persons, treating people equally, plenty of things in the Old Testament, um, how we treat the foreigner, the sojourner, all those things. But it's looking at the law with the right kind of lens. And it's not just looking at it. It's what the gospel does internally to us as we then look to the law. So it addresses, the gospel addresses our motivation. So racism, sectarianism is motivated by a lot of things, isn't it? It's motivated by fear, insecurity, a need to bolster your own identity, a need to feel right and the other people wrong. And the gospel comes along and addresses this at a heart level, at a motive level, that we are, we've been saved by grace. There's nothing superior of ourselves. The gospel is the greatest equalizer of all time. How could we, understanding the gospel have any kind of racist or sectarian that we would think of ourselves by something that, one, that we haven't even done, that we just happen to be born into a certain kind of way or a certain kind of community, that we, understanding the gospel, would somehow want to elevate ourselves as superior over other people because of those things? This is why Paul's appealing to the gospel. He says, you're not walking, you're not, your conduct isn't in line with the gospel. He doesn't appeal to the law. Look at um, even 2 Corinthians 8. This is um, Paul, and he's, he's, uh, he's addressing the church, and he's addressing this idea of them giving um, financially, um, and one of the other churches was giving um, to the poor and different things like that, and he's encouraging them to give um, to, to further the kingdom of God. But look at how he appeals to them in verse 8 of chapter 8. He says, I say this, that is, he's encouraging them to give. I say this not as a command. He's not appealing to any kind of law or command. He's not appealing to the Old Testament tithe. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What is he appealing to? The gospel. He isn't saying, listen, you should be giving because, listen, the Old Testament says there's this tithe that we have to give. He's not appealing um, to any kind of moral law of reason that they should give. Be good people. This is what good people do. No, he's appealing back to what God has done for them through Jesus Christ. Jesus made himself poor. That is, he left heaven, took on human flesh, lived essentially as a homeless person whilst traveling and doing ministry, relying on the generosity of other people, doing all of that. He gave up all of that, became poor, so that you and I might become rich. Not financially rich, spiritually rich. It's his appeal to the gospel. 2 Timothy 2. Um, look, he, does, he does this again. Um, if we look in 2 Timothy 2, in um, verses 11 to 14. 
Uh, maybe it's First Timothy two. Hang on. Nope. I've definitely written down the wrong one. Ooh, I love it when I do that. He's appealing to um, renouncing ungodliness. And there's a lot of ways that we can renounce ungodliness. Is that it? Man, I am way off. I like people that know their Bible, though. No, that's not either. Is it Titus? Let's try Titus 2. That might actually be it. It's Titus 2. Thank you. We'll get there in the end. Titus 2. Titus 2. 11 to 14. Thank you. For by, grace, for by the grace of God, sorry, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Again, starting with God's grace. And what does that grace of God do that's appeared to us, that's brought us salvation? The gospel Verse 12, training, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, look at all that's there. Being zealous for good works Purity, holiness, and all of that, he's basing on the gospel. The grace of God has appeared. That brings us salvation. That then trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled and upright. It's not the law that he's appealing to, is it? And there are lots of ways that you can renounce or say no to ungodliness. Well, if I do that, I'll look bad. I might be excluded from the community if I do that. God won't reward me with health or wealth or happiness. Man, I'm really going to, I'll hate myself in the morning. Right? All these ways that you can say no to ungodliness, but all of those motives are essentially self-centered motives. They're motives about us. They're selfish kind of motives. And using self-centered motives to avoid sin, which is the epitome of (laughs) self-centeredness, will actually fail us in the end. It's a house of cards. It is the gospel within us that helps us overcome the power of sin. It changes the way that we are motivated on the inside. It changes, us, our, it changes our operating system, if you will. Third then, then what does the gospel-shaped life look like? Well, let's look at it at a bigger um, culture, kind of a large way first, and then we'll look at it kind of personally. Um, within that. Andrew um, Del Banco, he's a professor at Columbia University. He's not a Christian man. Um, he wrote a book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And um, I, in it, um, he kind of outlines this kind of idea of American history. And I think there's a lot of things there that we can learn because it's it mir- America a lot of times is an exaggerated kind of idea of Western values as kind of Western experience 
experiment. And I think there's a, whilst they're not the same, there's a lot of similarities. And in this, he kind of, um, he, he looks at the history of America, which is fairly short. <laughs> um, and and he, he wants to know what, what was the motivating factor um, within these kind of stages. And he looks at these three stages of God, nation, and then self. So why do we get up and go to work in the morning? What is our motivation um, culturally, collectively, together? All of these sorts of things. And he, he says it, it kind of started off in a lot of ways with God. People had a, a God-centered kind of work ethic, a God-centered idea of community. Um, you know, it was kind of founded in some ways. I don't think America's ever been a Christian nation, but in a lot of ways for kind of religious freedom, all these sorts of things. But he says somewhere kind of along the way that, that started to morph and shape then into essentially their nation, America replacing God. So this idea of democracy is going to solve our problems. Um, you know, America has this kind of manifest destiny um, ahead of it. You know, we've got to blaze our way to the Pacific Ocean and all of these sorts of things. And since so that kind of really is what generated a lot of the kind of cultural identity up until about World War II. And then things started to shift and change into really where they are today. Of uh, It's not really a, a, a narrative informed by God or even by community or nation, but really by self. And it's, it's this question of self, self-identity, um, right? So now I don't even want to be informed by my community. Um, so I myself will determine. It's self-determination. Um, so you can't tell me even, you know, what race I am. So there's literally people who are white that are like, no, actually I'm black and identify more with that kind of race. Or it doesn't matter what your biology says. It doesn't matter what your community says. It doesn't matter what science, like you will self, you know, it's all self. And I will determine for myself. And he says, the more that happens, then the more culture starts to kind of break down. Because to have a cohesive society, you have to have a bigger cultural narrative than self. What is something I would give my life to outside myself? What's something I'd be willing to die for outside myself? And without that cultural narrative, societies tend to break down. And so how do people, or how do we get people to see that self-happiness, self-fulfillment are not ultimate, but they're actually self-destructive in the end? Um, He says, you know, it might be, tempting to kind of go, okay, well, well, we need to get back to, we need to get back to God. But a lot of times what we mean by that is we need religion back, right? And we as Christians tend to fight. We want, we want religion institution back. The problem with that though is religion, although it makes you less selfish than secularism, that's been documented. Religious people, not just Christians, but just religious people tend to be less selfish people. They tend to be more outward looking. So religion makes you less selfish than secularism, but it also makes you more tribal. It makes you more tribal. Religion has a tendency, we're not talking about Christianity per se, we're talking about just religion, can make you haughty, can make you pride, can make others the infidel. Um, We can see other people as less human. And so secularism makes us more selfish. Religion makes us more tribal. And all of these, then we end up with this kind of declining society that's fragmented, that's polarized. So the answer isn't necessarily religion. The answer really to that is a deeper understanding of the gospel, Christianity, and the way that it it actually should be practiced in that way. Because Christianity 
fulfills that something bigger. It, it makes us less selfish, but it also humbles us at the same time. We understand that we're saved by grace. It's nothing of our own doing. There's nothing with inside me that I can, I can boast about. My only boast is in Christ. And that then leads us into loving service, even of the other, of other people that we don't see eye to eye with. Keller has this great quote. He says, Christians, though citizens of the city of God, should be the very best citizens of the city of man. What does that mean then kind of personally for us then as well? How does the gospel kind of shape us personally? Well, there's, I think, different categories. Um, Again, Keller kind of puts these three categories that we can kind of break down most of our life into. There's this kind of legalistic, moralistic way of of see things. There's a a relativistic way to kind of see things. And then there's a gospel kind of way to see things. Um, So... A few examples of that. Um, depression. Non-physiological depression. There's lots of physiological reasons to do that, but just normal kind of, you know, bog-standard depression. The legalist or the moralist might look to, like Job's friends did, right? There must be something in your life that you are doing wrong that you need to repent of. That, whatever that is, that's what's causing you know, this kind of, it's, it's essentially looking to our behavior. The relativist may focus more on feelings, right? You need to look at your feelings, how you're feeling, feeling of those things and change the way that we feel. Maybe you need to treat yourself better or indulge some kind of desires in, in a way. The gospel looks at our heart. There's something in us that is displaced or has become more important than um, the place that, that Christ should sit. And in doing that, then, we've given some, something more control over our life than needs to be. And again, these are examples and maybe oversimplified ways that we can get at uh, an idea of these things. Race, we've talked about that again. Um, a legalist, a moralist, turns cultural differences into moral issues. Right? There's just cultural differences that we have. It doesn't mean they're necessarily moral issues. Um, we struggle with that even here, Right? We turn language into a moral issue of some kind. It's just, it's just difference. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's just cultural difference. The relativist, though, might go the opposite direction. Listen, all culture is awesome. All cultural is wonderful. It's all the same. It's all kind of equal. Well, really? Everything about every culture is good and right and, and equal? What about like child sacrificing cultures? The gospel gets underneath all of that. It pulls you out of your cultural superiority, but it also gives you ways to both affirm the positive in all cultures, but also to be able to critique all cultures, even your own. Or humor. The legalist or the moralist. Someone said the the best way to tell the Pharisee is they're always going around saying, that's not funny. There's no sense of humor at all. But there's the other kind of like relativistic kind of humor, right? It's, it tends to be funny, but it's cynical. It can be bitter. It's cutting to those they don't like, which is really a form of self-righteousness as well. 
right? There's a lot of that. There's a lot of those like kind of like political satire kind of, and some of them are funny depending on like if you agree with them or not. It's all kind of relativistic. But the gospel, it gives us a different kind of sense of humor. First of all, it makes you laugh, at, be able to laugh at yourself, like in a healthy way, not in a self-loathing kind of way. We're able to see the world in a way where we can laugh at ourselves. We can laugh at our own um, tribe even. And then how do we lastly allow the gospel to shape us as, as we close? Um, over and over, you've, if you've been here or, or heard any of my sermons within the last couple years, you know I've referenced another sermon that's, that's probably influenced me more than any other. Um, and I want to just give you a quote to this from Thomas Chalmers. He says this. He says, There is not one personal trans- transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty. I'm going to read that again. There's not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess a heart of affections is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dispossess a heart of affections is the expulsive power of a new one. You want to be a new kind of person? It's not enough just to work on the will. We have to work beyond that down to our desires, to, as Thomas Chalmers says it, the affections of our heart. That's what has to change. And that's what the law can't change. The law on its own can't change our desires. It can only guide us into the way that we should, should live. It can't give us the motivation to actually live that way. It's the gospel that does that. The gospel is the underlying operation system of the heart. That we then look to the map of the law um, to, as a guide. The new law that, God, that Jesus has instituted, the law of Christ, as Paul would say, a law of love. We change essentially through worship. This giving and experiencing the love of Christ. And by worship, I don't just mean the songs that we sing. That's one part of it. But we, as we said, even giving of our, our finances as worship, experiencing the love of God as worship. We're going to gather next Sunday for extended time of prayer. Um, we worship God through prayer by listening, by communicating, by, by expressing ourselves to him. We change through worship where we set our affections. Tim Keller gives another illustration of this woman that he met. Um, and by the time he met her, um, her life was um, in, had been in disarray. Um, she found herself living you know, off, off of welfare in a welfare state, kind of alone. And her past was um, she had been a very beautiful woman. Um, and um, because of that, it attracted the attention of men and often the attention of not-so-good men, and kind of fen- fell into this pattern of being with criminal men, and eventually that led to some kind of like drug addiction and jail time and things like this, and she was trying to kind of get her life back together and was going to see a counselor, um, but she was also attending a church, not his church, but a, a church where she heard the gospel. And as she's going to this counselor, the counselor said, listen, the counselor rightly identified essentially her idol, this affection of her heart. It said, listen, you're addicted to the love of a man. 
without the, the love or affection or attention of a man, you don't feel like you have self-worth. You're addicted to that to provide your self-worth. She, the counselor was probably right about that. She's like, okay, well, well what, what do I need to do? And then the counselor said, well, this is what you need to do. You need to, this wasn't a Christian counselor. You need to finish your education. You need to get that education so that you can get a career. And that career then will allow you to be financially independent where you don't have to rely, you know, on, on other people. And again, this woman had been hearing and understanding the gospel to deeper degrees. And this was her response. Very wise one. She said, you want me to exchange a female idol for a male idol? You want me to transfer my fragility to where if a man lets me down to a career, to where if my career, if I lose my job and it lets me down, you want me to transfer my fragility essentially to a more politically correct idol, a more politically correct place. And she was right. She had started to base her identity on Colossians chapter 3. Right? Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that you are not your own, that you've been bought with a price, that we essentially now belong to Jesus. And because of us belonging to Jesus, because of what he has done and accomplished to us through the gospel, that frees us from this need for both a man, in her case, or some kind of career, some kind of affirmation or financial security. It frees us from those things. Not that things are wrong. And this is what she said. She said, whenever a guy would start to give me attention and I would feel that kind of need to respond in the old kind of way creep up, I would remind myself that I belonged to Jesus and all that he had accomplished for me to free me from that need. And this is incredibly insightful. She says, it gave me the freedom to explore the guy, not just to fall for the guy. There wasn't wrong with the interaction, but she's now free from this need to, if this doesn't work out, if this, if, if this falls short, if this doesn't, my life will also go with it. It gave her a foundation to stand on where she was able to interact in a much more healthy way. This is how the gospel starts to penetrate our lives. This is how the gospel begins to shape us. We look to Jesus, as we said last week, We look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. Our confidence is in him, not in us, even the us that's trying to please him. Again, nothing wrong with those things. Paul actually says this in Philippians 1.27. He says, only let your manner of life, the manner of life, the way in which we live our lives, be worthy of the gospel. That should be our our hope for this life, that our life would be worthy of the gospel. That what Jesus has come and accomplished for us through his death and his resurrection, that our life would be worthy of those things. Not a life that we say, hey, thanks for that. Now I'm going to go live my life kind of detached in a self-righteous kind of way, right? Even in a religious kind of way, even with a Christian label on it kind of way. But it's still a life detached. It's like that Pharisee looking to ourselves, obeying the law. And that just doesn't work. It just doesn't change us. It is a life looking to Jesus, shaped by the gospel, 
than looking to the map of the law through the lens of the gospel as a guide. But it's not our foundation. It's Jesus and what he has done for us is our foundation. So when we say we want to be a community that's shaped by the gospel, this is beginning to touch on what we mean by that. We'll spend the rest of our lives trying to plumb the depths of that truth. Um, it's, again, Keller talks about the gospel being like a diamond, right? Every time you turn it, there's a different facet. The light hits it a different way. It changes its color. It's, it's, it's not static. It's not something that, that stays the same. The gospel continually peels layers of our heart back and back and back. It's those mercies that are new every single morning. The law can't provide any of that. The law can't energize and motivate our heart. It actually does the opposite. It reveals our need for the one who can through what he has done for us through the gospel that motivates and energizes us then to live out those good works that he's predestined for us beforehand. I hope that continues to make sense as we chew through that, as we talk about that in our groups, as we look to the scripture, um, Titus, not First Timothy, and allow that to deepen our understanding of the gospel. That the gospel isn't just how you enter Christianity, it's how you live your entire life as a Christian. Let's pray. Father, we again say thank you. Um, and we again just admit our, um, that we are creatures and not the creator, um, that we often get this wrong, um, that I just admit that even though I understand this at an intellectual level at times, although that's deepening as I, as I continue to, to look to you, there's still times I just default back to the old, um, the old way of, of, of just trying to do things on my own, trying to be the kind of person that you want on my own. I'm trying to, to look to my own deeds, trying to look to the law apart from the gospel. Um, and then get frustrated when my heart, my desires um, turn to lesser things. And so, Father, I just pray this morning by your spirit that you would just stir our affections again for, for the good news of Jesus, uh, for Jesus himself and uh, for all that he has accomplished for us, that he became poor so that we might become rich. Um, that the gospel would seep down into every nook and cranny of our heart that it would begin to um, shape and affect the kind of people we are, the way that we think, um, the way that we feel, um, the way that we express our, our sadness, the way we express our, our doubt, the way we express our, our joy, our, our humor. Um, Father, may all of these things be shaped by you. Um, Father, where my words and explanations have just fallen short, um, I just pray that your spirit would, um, would do what only you can do, um, that you would illuminate, that you would draw um, us closer to you, that you would um, give us insight, that you would reveal yourself um, in, in just really powerful ways. Um, Father, even as we gather in communities throughout this week, may we, um, may we just encourage one another in these things. May we um, wrestle with these things. May we ask the right questions. Father, may we seek you. Um, we, you've promised that we would find you um, in that. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.